Hi, and welcome back to Your School is Effing You, a podcast about all the ways that the modern institution of education is failing students, teachers, and democracy. My name is Timothy Budd. I'm a teacher of philosophy and humanities in Montreal, Quebec, in Canada. Today I want to tell a story. It's a story of addiction. The modern institution of education has an addiction problem. It's addicted to standardization. I think this is the most addictive drug in the industry. No matter how many times we admit to ourselves that we have a problem, that this addiction is bad for us, that it's actually getting worse, we still come back to it. Sometimes we even convince ourselves that the only solution to our standardization problem is more standardization. You see this sad story over and over again in the literature and in the research. An author goes out of his way to show that grades are unreliable and then suggests that the solution is grading more, just in a different way. Another goes out of her way to show that testing doesn't track future success and then suggests that the solution is more testing, just in a different way. Yet another makes the case that curves skew results, and then suggests that the solution is just that we're not using the curve the right way. We've got the wrong curve. There is no 12-step program for what we've got. I think cold turkey is the only way. But I can't make this case all at once. And this part is important, I think. Sometimes I begin the semester with my philosophy students by asking why they decided to take my course. While it's not the most common response, I regularly hear that a student wants to learn how to argue. What they have in mind is being able to respond to their parents at the dinner table, or to their friends before school or at the bar, or even to respond to trolls online. At first, I simply accepted this answer. But lately I've begun to address it. That's just not how arguments work, I say. They take time. I'm trained in philosophy. I have an advanced degree. I've been teaching philosophy professionally for almost two decades. And I need 15 weeks with my students to make a convincing argument about knowledge, about how we see the world, about our place in the world, about what we can't know and why. And to be honest, I'd prefer to have 30 weeks. Make a case for a different way of educating. But it will take time and many different conversations. Before I continue to make my case, I'd like to offer a diagnosis. This isn't medicine, of course, so this is not the only possible diagnosis. But I think it's a powerful one. And one that's supported by the literature. The reason we're addicted to standardization is because it holds out the promise of making education scientific. You see this in so much of the literature that promotes various kinds of standards, criteria, competencies, curves, data, statistics. If only we could properly apply the algorithm, our teaching and grading practices would become more science than art. I'm going to say this bluntly. 
Education is an art. It is not a science. And I think we shouldn't be afraid of this. There are a number of ways of making this case, but I just want to hint at it for the time being. But I want to just hint at it for the time being. When you try to force grades to all fit the same curve, among teachers in a department or a school, or even between schools in a district, you make it so that all the students are the same. You are treating them like lab rats. They are not the same, and making them appear the same on paper doesn't make it so. Instead, it avoids reaching them where they are, which makes education impossible. So, why are we so afraid of admitting that education is an art? Again, there's more than one answer. In part, the current emphasis on STEM in education, a dusty relic of the Cold War, has tilted the scale in that direction. But more importantly, I think the idea that education might be made a science makes it less terrifying. Standardization, and yes, I realize I haven't defined it yet, would make our job much easier. Education and grading as a science would feel a bit more like plug and play. And to be sure, I'm not claiming that this is actually the way that science works. Art is hard. Of course it is. And I don't blame my colleagues for wanting to make grading a science. We've been promised by our administrators and our pedagogical advisors that it is or can be made so. But I think we should stop listening to them. They are our pushers and our enablers. But this addiction is strong, and we won't break it easily. When I talk to colleagues about the research on grading, most listen with a certain fascination, even appreciation, but then respond that, though the studies show that grading is unreliable, they claim, I know how to be objective. This is sometimes called the bias bias. The research is true for everyone but me. Likewise, when I speak to people who do not work in education and describe all of the problems with motivation and competition, anxiety, they usually respond that a little competition, a little kick in the butt in school, is good for students, without remembering how awful it felt when they were students. It's not their fault. Not the fault of my colleagues, not the fault of the adults who made it out the other side of the education system. The system wants to keep us addicted. Just why is hard to say. In this episode and the next, I'm going to talk specifically about standardization. What it is, what it intends to accomplish, and of course, where it fails us. This is episode four. Does standardization eliminate variation in grading? Here's a spoiler. No, it does not. Grades ruin everything. After a week off from the theme of grades, I want to return to where we left off. So, here's a bit of a review, a bullshitter's guide if you like. If you listen to episode 2, 
I was discussing variation and reliability, and we used the classic articles from Starch and Elliott, published in 1912 and 1913, as our starting point. As a refresher, they took exams from English, history, and math at the high school level and distributed them to 200 teachers to mark. And when the exams were returned, they found a 40 to 50 point range in the marks. The same paper that received a 90 from one teacher received a 50 or even a 40 from another. And just a reminder, this was true in math just as much as in English and in history. This is important because of the expectation that math is objective, so there shouldn't be any variation, certainly not 40 points worth of variation. You may recall that I discussed possible causes for variation in math. If you've got other hypotheses, by the way, I'd love to hear them. I even read some of the conclusions from Starch and Elliot in episode two. Hopefully you recall some of the wording. Words like subjective, unreliable, and absurd were thrown around. Because the standard deviation was around seven in these studies, and Starch was able to reduce it even further to five, they recommended a move from the A to F grading scheme. A scheme with fewer categories is less sensitive to variation. And as I suggested at the time, this appears to be an attempt to hide our dirty little secret, which shouldn't really be a secret at this point, that grades are arbitrary. One of the most interesting aspects of this story, and this is true of Starch and Elliot, but it's also true of their contemporary colleagues who were coming to the same conclusions at the same time, because the research is pretty unambiguous, is that there's a strong resistance to their own conclusions. Despite calling grades unreliable, subjective, and calling the process absurd, they continually double down and look for ways to make grades and grading more objective. So, here's another quote from Starch and Elliot. The immense variability of marks tends, obviously, to cast considerable discredit upon the fairness and accuracy of our present methods of evaluating the quality of work in school. No matter how much anyone may wish to minimize the utility of marks, they have, nevertheless, an indispensable administrative value from the standpoint of the school and a real personal value from the standpoint of the pupil. I don't dispute the indispensable administrative value from the standpoint of the school, but I find it incomprehensible that they would conclude that it has a real personal value from the standpoint of the pupil. Whatever value it may have to the pupil, and there are many, many, many studies that have shown this to be untrue, whatever value it may have from the standpoint of the pupil, that value is ruined by the fact that the grade is meaningless. Almost inevitably, these early studies from the first decades of the 20th century suggest that the solution to all of our problems is standardization. There's a fundamental hope that standardization will fix the grading problem. And if you work in education, you've definitely heard this, and you've heard this term used. In fact, if you're like me, you're pretty suspicious of the term at this point. You're probably getting the picture. I think standardization is a way of hiding our dirty little secret, not a way of solving it. Standardization is the drug the modern institution is addicted to. 
It may even be the case that standardization is the modern institution. Okay, but what does standardization really mean? As always, there's not just one answer to this question. There are different kinds of standardization from different perspectives. I don't intend to discuss all of them in this episode, but I do want to give a sense of the different kinds. First, there's standardized testing. This is a way of forcing all teachers to test the same material. This, of course, forces them to all teach the same material, which forces students to learn all of the same material. It attempts objectivity by way of uniformity. In other words, the objectivity is built into the fact that every student is asked to know the exact same material. There are a number of problems with this approach, but this episode is not about standardized testing, so I won't go into all of them. However, it's worth noting a lot of standardized tests, I'm looking at USATs, are sensitive to income level and food insecurity. Standardized tests that have not been made multiple choice are still subject to a lot of variation, of course. More importantly, standardized tests that are multiple choice are still subject to the choice of questions and the choice of possible answers. Finally, standardization of material is in conflict with teacher autonomy. There's also standardization of composition. My guess is whether you're a teacher, a student, or a former student, you're familiar with the classic five-paragraph rule. One intro paragraph, three body paragraphs, and a concluding paragraph. I'm convinced no teaching practice has done more harm to my students than this one. Within standardized testing, there are two main approaches, criteria referenced and norm referenced. In the case of criteria referenced testing, students are marked on a hypothetical scale from 1 to 100 or whatever your marking system may be. And in the case of norm referenced, grades are converted to a standard curve. This is a serious simplification, of course, but I wanted to mention this by way of introducing the second kind of standardization, standardization by way of the curve. Here the suggestion is that the normal curve represents the way reality just plays out in the end. Average height falls on a curve, average weight falls on a curve. Why shouldn't educational performance fall on a curve as well? This is a tricky question, and one to which I plan to re uh, return in the next episode. But there are a couple of things we might note right now. The assumption that educational achievement falls on a curve, the assumption that educational achievement falls on a curve, cannot really be separated from psychometrics like IQ testing. Indeed, the introduction of the curve in grading has been linked historically to psychometrics. And if you're not suspicious of psychometrics and IQ scores, you should be. In addition, grading on a curve makes grades artificially scarce, introducing competition in a situation where collaboration has been shown to be much more productive. The third kind of standardization is standardization by training teachers how to grade. This too can be done in a number of different ways, shared rubrics, grading matrices, which list what should be graded and what weight it should have, lists of what is fair game and what is not, should we mark for grammar, should we mark for style, should we have a length requirement, 
Should we deduct points for late work? If so, how much? Should math students have to show their work? Should the work they show be the same as the way that I taught them to do a problem? Of these three types of standardization, and this list is certainly not exhaustive, this last one is perhaps the least offensive. After all, shouldn't students be able to expect that all of their teachers will mark in the same way? Isn't this a reasonable way of ensuring equity, another word that is constantly used by the experts, but never in the same way twice? So, can standardization of grading practices work? Can it eliminate variation and unreliability? The interesting thing, or depressing thing, depending on how you look at it, is that this question has been asked and answered. In 2011, Hunter Brimmy took up the question very explicitly within the context of the research of Starch and Elliot. He wondered if running the same experiment as Starch and Elliot ran with English papers, but now after having instructed the teachers on a common grading practice, would reduce variation and increase reliability. Would teachers across the district, having received the same training, assign the same paper grades that lie within a range similar to the ranges shown in the Starch and Elliott study? These teachers specifically received training what's called the 6 plus 1 traits of writing system, where teachers create a rubric assigning point values to each trait. I'll keep it simple and short. The 6 plus 1 traits are the following. Voice, it's a question of appropriate personality for the writing occasion. Ideas, uh, is there a strong thesis with pertinent support? Presentation, appearance and format of the paper. Conventions, standard English grammar. Organization is their structure and coherence. Word choice are the words used precisely and correctly. And finally, sentence fluency. Uh, this is a question of sentence structure and syntactic variety. The idea here is that a group of teachers ought to be able to get together and decide on the relative weight of these sorts of characteristics in order to make grading more consistent from teacher to teacher and from paper to paper. The teachers in the study received 20 hours of training in the 6 plus 1 traits of writing system of marking. What were the results? There was a range of 46 points from 96 to 50, from a high A to failing. There was a mean of 81.15 and a standard deviation of 9.55. In other words, standardization of grading practices did nothing to alleviate the problem. If one looks at the standard deviation, one could argue that standardization made things worse. The results of the study are not at all surprising to me at this point, and hopefully they're not surprising to you either. If the question is, will standardization of grading practices reduce the range we find in the Starch and Elliott studies, the answer, at least here, is decidedly no. Now the question is, why not? Brimmy offers a number of rather bizarre diagnoses. He suggests that teachers may be ignorant of the current research on grading practices, or they may not fully understand what is meant by the traits, ideas, word choice, sentence fluency. And there seems to be evidence that teachers were unaware of how to derive a final mark after having assessed each of the traits. 
The reason I find these explanations particularly bizarre is because of the nature of Brimley's experiment. He very specifically trained them in the use of a current grading practice, using traits such as ideas, word choice, and sentence fluency. How can his conclusion be that the subjects didn't understand any of these? In addition, he notes that some teachers seemed to focus specifically on what they could mark wrong, as if their job was to ensure that students did poorly. And this is important enough for us to pause for a moment. I want to be sure I do not blame teachers for adopting this stance. The institution is failing teachers just as much as it's failing students. Many teachers don't feel they are doing a good job as educators if they are not failing their students. But this is not a side effect of grading. This is the very purpose of grading. To keep the teacher in charge, in control, this is the hidden curriculum, or at least a major part of it. To be sure, this is not an accident. This is how the system has been slowly designed over the last century and a half in order to teach compliance, not creative problem solving. Finally, to go back to Brimmy, Brimmy gives us a warning. Grading subjectivity may lead schools and districts to put more emphasis on standardization. And this at the expense of teacher autonomy. He says, Thus we continue to confound ourselves in a vain search for uniformity, misusing grades to compare students instead of simply viewing them as indicators of student progress. He had me up until the suggestion that we use grades as indicators of student progress. The problem of variation makes both comparison and measuring progress into nonsense. This conclusion seems to be on the tip of his tongue, but he just doesn't want to say it. So I will. Grades ruin everything. Thanks for listening to Your School is Effing. If you like the show, please consider sharing it with your parents, your colleagues, your teachers, your students. If you have an idea for an episode or you want to comment on something I'm saying, please email me at you at gmail.com. Intro and outro music is Don't Let It Rain by Old Savannah. Don't let your secure affair.